I'd always believed that computer science or software was really powerful and that you could imagine something and inject it into a reality. Way, way back in 2017, what feels like a different lifetime now, I had the distinct privilege of attending the BCX Disrupt Conference, an event dedicated to better conversations around digital transformation and innovation. And they had a headline keynote speaker of Malcolm Gladwell, it's a pretty big deal. Richard Mulholland was one of the speakers, a previous guest on this show. And the standout guest on the day for me was a lady by the name of Rapalang Rabana. Uh, Rapalang and I had met before in her time as the CEO of Yego, really exciting and wildly successful uh, young South African startup that came out of UCT. You know how you make calls using WhatsApp as opposed to traditional telephone connections? Well, they were doing that 15 years ago, which is pretty remarkable. We reconnected at the conference and have gone on to forge a really great friendship. We've worked together on some clients and I spend a lot of time now talking to Rapalang about the projects that she's busy on at the moment, which is essentially redeveloping and redefining the way that adults learn. She is a key disruptor, a key innovator in the adult development and adult learning space. And I think you're going to love hearing from her. I think you're going to love hearing her thoughts, especially at this very weird and very unpredictable time. Her optimism is infectious. Her drive is contagious. And it really was a privilege speaking to her in what is now another uh, COVID-19 lockdown special on the One-Eyed Man podcast. My name is Mike Stockport. I'm really chuffed that you're listening. As always, if you enjoy the show, please like it, share it, subscribe to the channel. We all need really positive and really motivating content right now. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the show. So my friend, it's so good to chat to you, even in this very strange time. I wanted to <laughs> maybe give listeners who aren't familiar with your career and some of the remarkable achievements of your, your recent and slightly less recent past, a bit of a sense of what you've done. Um, could you maybe give us a sort of a high level view of how, you, how your career has progressed and uh, we can maybe <laughs> revolve around the the conference where we reconnected a couple of years ago and then and then from there just tell us a bit about what's happening in your life right yes. now great so good to be with you again mike always lovely chatting what do i say about my career it's always such a foggy memory but let me try and remember <laughs> um, I would say that I... stress disorder. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> so i call myself you know a technology entrepreneur which is what i've been doing for the last 15 years i finished at uct um with a business science computer science back in 2005 and then I didn't yeah. know much about myself, but I knew enough to know that it was the end of the line for me in terms of joining another organization or system that I had to comply with. And I needed to get yeah. out and corporate was just not going to work out for me. And luckily, okay. I found a couple of guys in my class who were equally desperate not to get a job. And we started chatting you know, about what we could do um, to possibly be productive and make money next year and so that our parents don't kill us and be, you know, 
riddled with disappointment. And we thought, okay, great. <laughs> Let's start a, a business, you know? And, and we're like, okay, what will that business do? And we're like, okay, we'll figure that out in meeting two. <laughs> and then in meeting two, you know, we, I think one of the guys, yes, was looking at the issue of, as students, we never have enough core credit. I mean, even to organize yeah. the, these meetings that we're meeting up now, the, we had a code where you would send one, please call me, would meet, it's five o'clock, two, please call me, means that it's a six o'clock meeting. And we were like, that's just not a great way to do life. Phones are smarter. We've got Bluetooth and Wi-Fi on campus. 3G is, you know, starting to get big. There's got to be a different way to do yeah. life. And then that's all like, cool, then let's try do this voice over IP Skype-like stuff on cell phones so that we don't okay. have to do this kind of nonsense, please call me things to, to speak to each other. And we decided, cool, that's the business. And after graduation, we'll meet back middle of Jan and start this new life. And miraculously, we yeah. all got back middle of Jan as agreed. And we had our first meeting <laughs> about what we were going to do. <laughs> and that was the That's beginning. Incredible. I know. It, I'm still really, I was really surprised that we all came back as agreed. I thought someone would have some issues somewhere, but we all came. And we managed to deal with our parents and convince them to, to pay our rent and give us money for food. And live like students essentially for another couple of years while we figured ourselves out. Are your out. parents? Mm. Are your parents entrepreneurial, uh, Rafla? They were not. They spent most the first half of their careers as real as, as civil servants, really. And it's only in the move from Botswana okay. to South Africa that they started building their own businesses. So my dad now runs his own architectural firm, um, and my mom was probably entrepreneurial at heart much earlier. So she was an engineer at the airport, and she but she was always running side businesses, selling fat cakes and clothes and suits yes. and all of those things. So she's been a hustler okay. since the beginning okay. of time. In and her then, DNA, yeah. Yes, in her DNA, and she's now on her seventh career. She's now a farmer, and, and that's her thing now. So perhaps, yeah, there's that in her, but eventually they all came around. I'm always intrigued, uh, having come from a family that wasn't deeply entrepreneurial by nature, mm. um, how, how some people are drawn or instantly drawn to that lifestyle or that approach mm. to creating value whereas others uh, sort of naturally slip into it because their families are already heavily predisposed to an entrepreneurial frame of mind. But you're saying that, that essentially in your experience. Mm. Yeah. They were really at the beginning of their journey. And in fact, it was quite hard to convince them that I want to go this route. So about six months before my graduation, I was like, um, I was clear in my head that I'm not doing corporate. And then I started trying to do the battle with my parents so that they would not force me to get a job. And that wasn't an easy conversation sure. at all. Um, and, the, you know, there was lots of back and forth. They obviously wanted me to get experience and a blue chip company. And I actually did have a job offer because I was on a scholarship from one of them. So I was really supposed to mm. go. Mm. But in, in the final conversations with my dad, I was like, look, daddy, can you promise me that if I take this job into this organization, I will be happy and successful? Can you guarantee me that? And, sure. you know, he sighed and he says, no, I can't. And I'm like, well, then given there's no guarantees, can I just try this other way? Because there's no guaranteed win, whichever way you look at it. And you didn't just try. I mean, 
you succeeded. Uh, that business went on to be a really fantastic success, wasn't it? Yeah, it's been a great, it was a great journey. Jaeger was, you know, seven years of grueling learning, the fastest learning curve I've ever been on to date. And we were great, sure. I think, reference and case study for tech startups in South Africa. We built, when we launched the first version of Jaeger in February of 2006 or seven, it was, you know, one of the first um, mobile web apps in the world. And, uh, you know, competitors in Israel and the UK were, you know, had $10, $20 of $10, $20 million of funding compared to the measly few million rands that we had. But we were still able to produce a world-class product. And for me, that was an, a watershed experience that we could sit in a room, imagine something, hustle around, look for people to help us, look for money. And a year later, it exists. And hundreds of thousands of people have downloaded it and on their phones. And that was... I remember just being blown away that that could actually happen and that I'd always believed that computer science or software was really powerful and that you could imagine something and inject it into a reality um, and people would use it. And that's always been why I love the space so much. So, so Jaeger, a fantastic Mm. success. You left that business. What happened straight after that entrepreneurial part of your life? Sure. So Telfree, which was another local operator at the time, bought um, Yego in 2010 and stuck around for another few years um, and got tired of the telecom space, um, mostly because we were always software people and we wanted to stay closer to developing, you know, product, um, whereas telecoms is a lot of regulatory and cowboy tendencies. It's, it's not a fabulous sector in my view. So I wanted out of that. And um, learning was always one of the things that was on my mind, but we never really had time to explore that within Yego. So we then I started thinking about, you know what, for for this next business, I want to make sure that I choose something that has been stewing on my mind for a long time um, because there's no such thing as an easy yes. business. Um, and when things are rough and nothing's working and you've got no money, I want to know that I'm just doing something I love to think about. And learning and education is yes. definitely right up there for me. And like with Diego, I was really itching a scratch from years before when I reflected on my own high school mm. experience. Um, it was always, I, I was very well educated, but even in that, there was lots of inefficiency in that you would do a test or an exam and you would get your script back and you would look at the things you got wrong and you would promise yourself you would come back to it, but you know you never did. It was just too hard to keep track of. Yes. Year after year, you get better at the things you were good at and you ignore the things you didn't understand. And I thought, shouldn't it be simpler to be able to have a system, you know, on your on an app that is tracking the things that you're getting wrong and right and brings you back to the stuff that you get wrong with the corrective explanation so that you can practice that more. Because what happens when you study is that to make ourselves feel better, you know, you keep focusing on the stuff you like, the stuff you're good at. Um, and that doesn't necessarily help you close your gaps. And that's really where the first solution of Yegos, I mean, Rekindle Learning started. Micro learning, adaptive learning, companies primarily use it for sales, compliance, digital skill stuff. And instead of emailing that PDF or PowerPoint slide or doing a face-to-face presentation, you can repackage that content into short videos, interactive questions, um, and it tracks where you're getting stuff wrong and right and brings you back to the stuff you're getting right wrong until you demonstrate um, mastery. Almost like having a coach, like my mom used to be for me when I was a kid and trying to learn my times tables. You know, she knew the ones I was good at, so she would ask me the ones I always got wrong until I got better at it. 
And that's yeah. really the, the simple gist of it. And for me, there's a lot of stuff happening in ed tech, but I felt that we need to better understand where can technology make a greater impact or be more effective than a human learning. And I don't necessarily believe that technology everywhere in learning is better. I still think, you know, the classroom experience is beneficial, but specifically in the area of reinforcement and practice, I thought technology can make mm. a significant impact, which is really where we have focused with our micro-learning approach. It's hard to imagine a, an industry sector slash public service that is mm. more important to the future of humanity, the advancement of, of our endeavor together, but it's also mm. so steeped in tradition and legacy and heavy muscle memory. Yeah. So this is sure. the way learning is done and isn't done. Mm -hmm. Yours is a very pioneering approach to that, right? It is. It is pioneering. And um, it's certainly, I wanted to step ahead from the first generation of e-learning, which really was just putting the stuff, the textbook that was printed and putting it online um, and maybe having a, yes. a video in it and then it's e-learning. And I wanted to fundamentally change how you engage with and assimilate that knowledge, um, which is why the level of interactivity and format is the way it is. I mean, for me, that was an important departure because um we needed to demonstrate that um, you would achieve greater efficacy. And um, we released a case study recently with one of our financial services clients where they've got a lot of compliance things and stuff. And the regulator here has various exams like phase RE5 that people need to prep and pass for. I mean, they typically did the face-to-face -face yes. workshops, but the pass rates were very poor. So using the app, people were able to improve the average scores in the exams by over 30%, which was um, a singularly the biggest jump in the aggregate scores in, in the company since they started training that. So that's that's a great thing because it's showing us that people didn't weren't necessarily reading the 500-page manual properly and not getting through it and therefore not being properly prepared for the exam. Mm. But on the micro-learning app that they could do bit by bit every day for three months, they could be better prepared. That's incredible. Yeah, and we'll certainly send listeners who want to find a little bit more information out about mm. uh, Rekindle to, to the website to have a look at that. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. You mentioned the early stages of EdTech hmm. were really about people taking traditional learning materials and essentially digitizing them in, in the most basic way. Hmm. Uh, you and I share the sometimes quite dubious responsibility of helping corporates work through their digital transformation <laughs> projects and, and strategies. Yes. And I think we see that behavior reflected often in in their approach to solving solving digital solving old business problems using new tools is essentially mm. take the thing that we have and slap a digital layer on it and hope that it that it works really well and and as you and I, I think have experienced both in those projects and as advisors on those projects that doesn't have a really compelling success rate 
No, um, no, definitely. What are some of the what are some of the other problems or pitfalls that you see your corporate clients struggling with when they navigate this ideal of digital transformation for the first time? For me, it always starts with your own personal awareness journey. Because for me, digital transformation requires you to suppose a different situation. Um, And to get to the point where you can suppose something, you've got to know what you actually believe right now. And most of the time, people don't realize that they have integrated a belief or an assumption that is currently governing how they work or how they serve their clients because you just don't have awareness of that. You came into the company, maybe it was your first job, it's how it's always been, it's how the other people did it generations before. And therefore, it feels like it's true, it's permanent, it's it's the way the world works, it's the way it's supposed to be. And getting to that level of awareness to be able to see those assumptions is, is the real biggest block in the journey to digital transformation, which is why then people try and replicate whatever they were doing offline, online, because they Mm. haven't realized that we can make up another assumption about how this works. So a simple example that I often give is that if I asked you, you know, what happens when you've got no groceries in the house? What do you do? Most of us will, because of, you know, how our mother introduced us to this experience when we were kids, we'll get into the car, we'll go into the shop, we'll go through the aisles, buy what we need, we get to the cashier, we pay, we get to the car and take everything home and unpack it. And that's what grocery shopping is. And we forget that there was a time where it didn't work like that before discount, before mass retailing um, and mass production in agriculture. And they, there was, and someone supposed that this is how we could do it. They made, decided that this is the new assumption of how shopping is going to work and we're going to make it true. And Mm. they spent their life building businesses around that. And when we realized that someone supposed that, Once upon a time, we can suppose something else. So maybe when you're in the shop, you don't have to take stuff out at the cashier to pay. And there's something that picks up all the things you bought and you just walk out. Or maybe you don't even have to go to the shop and you just order it on your mobile app and it's delivered on time for dinner. Or maybe you don't even have to order it on your mobile app and the sensors in your fridge and your cupboards pick up the food as finishing and place the order for you. But in order to get to those ideas, yeah, yeah, you've got to realize that whatever we were doing was an assumption that worked for some time. And what is that assumption so that we can choose to change it? You you talk about the, you know, the legacy of the way we've always done things has been a very powerful force, but there are Mm. sometimes even more powerful forces at play. And, And I think your example is such a, such a useful illustration of this, because when you talk about shopping as an Mm. exercise or getting groceries and Mm. and there are such there are powerful images and memories that are conjured up in my mind immediately Mm. when you say that i remember going to the hyperama and benoni with my mom and having these two big trolleys full of stuff we would go on an excursion as a family right my aunt would come with and we'd go to juicy lucy for a (laughs) baked potato afterwards and (laughs) things you do in pononi yes (laughs) these these were the exciting moments in my childhood you forgot the goofy name but yes (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, never forget the Milky Way. But it, it, what I'm trying to say is that there's there's legacy, but then there's also things like nostalgia and mm. sentimentality. And while we don't often think of those in business terms, they're very powerful forces that drive decision making, even at the highest level of even the most powerful organizations. How do you so, tackle some of those deeper kind of, you know, rooted feelings of comfort with the way that people have done things in the past? You know, if I had the answer for that, I think I'd have a major enterprise under me. Um, (laughs) I think part of the journey to forcing this rethinking is inherent in how we might need to relook at who do we serve and the culture of, of the way things work. So I think with traditional businesses, um, and I'm generalizing here, it was really around generating more revenue and and cutting down our costs. And the ones that performed on those two criteria best um, succeeded to a large extent. And now we've got we've got an additional um, playing field that we need to factor in. And I think it's about customer experience and employee experience. Um, and what those two things add to the equation is that when you look specifically at customer experience, because that's gained a lot more traction and hype in the last couple of years, to really serve the customer, you have to have a different leadership style than when you were focused first and foremost on revenue and cost, because that was that allowed for very Mm. authoritarian, self-serving leadership style where it was just about, you know, landing the big deal, cutting the costs where you needed to cut and the big man, alpha male could crack that. And it was fantastic and great. And then life got more competitive. And when we look at the companies that are doing extremely well now in um, the tech world, it's they really looked at that customer experience component a lot. And when you have to do customer experience work um, in the design sprints that we'll think about doing, you've got to listen. You've got to be more humble. You've got to collaborate. Mm. You've got to bring other people into the conversation. You've got to go back to first principles. What is this customer really trying to do? How do they perceive all these things that you've done? Which is a very different leadership style, much more servant collaborative leadership style. And once you shift from the internal customer being your boss or the alpha male CEO to really being your customer, then it forces you to change your points of reference in what you deem to be successful and how you work to serve that real customer. I don't know if that's making sense, but that shift from the internal customer being, you know, because most of, I think traditional businesses really works to please your boss versus the new mm. business that's about customer first and whatever customer wants is more important than what your boss thinks. No, I think it makes a, a great deal of sense. And, mm. and the sad truth is, and I have a relatively cynical view on this that I probably should adjust <laughs> in, in the mm. short term. But, but the truth is that it appears to me that most organizations really struggle with change mm. until they are forced to change, until yeah. they are obligated in a, in a, in a painful way mm-hmm. to change their course or their strategy or their yeah. leadership style or whatever it is that we are talking about. And the truth is that, that we're being faced with a, highly accelerated and very painful and poignant moment in time right now in the midst of this pandemic that will force 
a multitude of organizations to change their strategy quite dramatically. And some of them will succeed in the face of that change and some of them won't. But you recently wrote a really helpful and really thoughtful article on LinkedIn titled uh, Becoming in a Time of Crisis or Becoming in Times mm. of, of Crisis, where I think you spoke at length about this dynamic and, and how, you know, again, to, to quote you know, the words that you said in the article, being cautious of sounding disingenuous in the midst of what is a very painful time for, for millions of people, there is an opportunity to rethink some of that muscle memory and that legacy in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have in more, in inverted commas, comfortable times. Yeah, exactly. Can you take us through some of the thoughts that you shared in that article and, and how they might be of use to, to listeners that are, are thinking in these terms right now? Sure. I think that most of the time, people have their greatest shifts in times of trauma. And I mean, there's lots of psychology around that, you know, divorce, death of a parent, all these things. And COVID in a way is a source of trauma because it forces you to stop in your tracks and wonder, do I really still want to do life like this? Or do I really still need to do what I was doing yesterday? And because that external force comes, you don't sort of have as much choice. And without those external traumatic events, you're relying on your own <clears throat> pursuit of self-development and self-desire, which can self-development, sorry, which can often get lost when you're busy working and doing the things that we're doing <clears throat> all the time. And that's why these external um, factors can can really accelerate things. And I'm sure you've seen the joke going around that COVID or Corona has been the greatest accelerator of digital transformation more than all the talks that yeah, we do and all your, the things that your CEO has been saying and things like that. And, and that's, yeah. I think, the reality of the human mind. It's easier to move it through an external shock than, than to rely on our own pursuit of um, improvement sometimes. Yes, yes. Yeah, because I guess a lot of what we say we want to do yeah. is is posturing or is the right thing to say to sound progressive or innovative Correct. or yes. you know the right conferences to attend the right courses to do the right papers to read and share but mm -hmm. actual change it's material hard, hard work <laughs> yeah i use the example of you know, every now and again you get served these ads on on facebook or on linkedin or twitter of you know body transformations an eight week body <laughs> transformation and inevitably yeah. <laughs> most of us will choose to go on that kind of kind of journey because we've had some uncomfortable <laughs> realization about our own fitness levels or our own appearance or <laughs> somebody gave us a bit of, a bit of feedback that was traumatic <laughs> And I think you know, what's really interesting about that comparison is that a, a body transformation, as an example, is, is something that takes an enormous amount of effort and deliberation and commitment to get right. Uh, and not just an enormous amount of commitment, but, but the truth is that if we, if we treat it as a, a once-off initiative, if we treat it as something that is only an eight-week project, the chances are that the results when we stop and go back to our old behaviors or our old habits will be incredibly disappointing, incredibly dissatisfying. 
Yeah, changing our behaviors is probably the hardest thing um, that we can do in our, in our adulthood. And we know how long it takes to form a habit, you know, from yeah. 21 or 30 days or whatever that might be. And yeah. something similar has to happen when we, want to want, when we want to drive change in an organization. It's not just the intention, but we've got to instill those new behaviors. We can't always rely on corporates to change as quickly as we want uh, them to. But we can rely on startups to be fundamentally disruptive and innovative. And I know you spend a lot of time advising technology startups and especially, you know, Southern African and and Sub-Saharan African Mm. startups that are looking to do really exciting work in, in interesting new ways. But I know from my experience of working with startups that there's this danger of them idealizing uh, Silicon Valley type uh, unicorns in the world of, you know, in inverted commas, traditional VC that we've come to understand to be the working model from from that world. And I know you know that a lot mm. of what we've accepted as, as normal in the kind of Americanized traditional sense of VC doesn't always translate as well to local startups, to local capital, and to the relationships mm. between the two. Um, what are some of the tips yeah. and hints and, and pieces of advice you're giving local startups that want to replicate the kinds of, of successes that you've, you've enjoyed in the past? Sure. The, the differences in the markets are pretty significant and we shouldn't um, overlook the fact that there is much less risk capital on the African continent than you would find in Silicon Valley, which mm. means that, um, you know, the when you look at Uber and the like that are still not churning a profit, that's a lot of risk capital that goes into sustaining that kind of organization. And yeah. you simply wouldn't find those kind of funders in, in our environment at all. So it's mm. even, it's critically important that you're, able to solve that customer's problem um, in a profit-generating way as soon as humanly possible. Because of the limited VC options that you have, you really don't want to find yourself desperate. I mean, you need to know that you're growing as fast enough that your revenue can support that cost base. So we do have that constraint, but I think it's actually a good thing because it forces us to really make sure that the product market fit happens earlier and that we keep tuned into that. Um, And having funding, having raised funding, I know the comfort it gives you psychologically, you just have less pressure to do so. So that bootstrapping could actually act in our favor in the long run, and we don't need to look at it as a limitation. And it helps us focus in on that customer need even more. Do you think it means that we build more resilient businesses in the long run? I think it means that we build more sustainable, yeah, and probably resilient businesses in the long run, just because, you know, a business can continue to run itself, even if it doesn't become a unicorn, which is actually still good because we do need businesses that service a market. It doesn't have to be a a billion dollar market and can continue to employ and retain staff. And this is still a good business and we shouldn't undermine that just because it's not a unicorn. If all graduates from UCT from universities did that uh, unemployment challenges would disappear sure and and wouldn't be that be an ideal solution to to that <laughs> it would problem. be great yeah exactly <laughs> so Rob Lung, you've been an absolute gem as always and your wisdom is always useful and valuable even though i've had multiple conversations with you and i know the you know we've had these discussions over and over again i still learn an incredible amount every time we speak some of that wisdom at the moment oh. is going into a book. Am I correct? Can I can I talk about that yet? Yes, 
Yes, so it has been a dream to write a book for a while and I'm finally getting, kicking my ass and getting it going and COVID-19 lockdown has helped a lot to give me the space and mind to focus and I've done a good online course that's helped me give myself a framework and tools to get going and I really want to go deeper into the conversations that we've had now around into that intersection between understanding digital technologies and digital transformation with how it intersects with um, our own mindset, that innovation mindset, that awareness and those new habits that you have to form. And I'm hoping it'll be interesting and novel, you know, because you don't often put those two things together. You'll often read a digital transformation book, but it doesn't speak to the development of an individual psyche or mindset. And we need to link those two things together in my mind because um, digital transformation can't happen without that. That's incredible. I, I reserve the right mm. to invite you back onto the show when you publish. And uh, I'm sure, I, I mean, yeah. I know I would, and I'm sure listeners would love to hear hear more about that particular approach to solving the digital transformation challenge. And I'm, I'm also glad mm. to hear that, that there are some really exciting and productive positive outcomes coming out of this very weird and strange time so it's it's encouraging to hear that you're finding ways to to stay productive and motivated and, yeah. and to create uh, enormous value um Rapalang, if people want to uh, reach out and connect with you online what mm. what are the best uh, platforms to do that on Sure. So I'm most active on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there and most of my posts are, are public and you can message me there. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Rapalang Ravana, luckily there aren't too many of us, so I'm pretty easy to find okay. there. And um, my website is rapalang.com um, where you would get in touch directly with my team. That's for speaking engagements and the like. That's great. Interviews or one-year actual meetings or anything else like that. Awesome. And then just remind us of the mm. Rekindle Learning uh, URL as well. Sure. So Rekindle Learning is um, www.rekindlelearning. So R-E-K-I-N-D-L-E learning or one word dot com. My friend, I cannot wait for a face-to-face uh, coffee when we're out of lockdown. Uh, look after yourself, stay yeah. safe, and we'll chat to you soon. Cool. Thanks a lot, Mike. Take care. Cheers. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.